every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. And welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name is Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. Uh, this week we've made it to episodes 517 Forever, 518 Intervention, and 519 Tough Love. Uh, we're getting into the darkness of the season now. Uh, talking with me this time is uh, Melanie Scala, back in the graveyard at last. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. How's it going, Melanie? It's going well. Thank you for having me. It has been a while. Yeah, and after this, I unless you need me to sub, I'm not back until season seven. Oh, wow. Um, well, yeah, scheduling has been a little hit or miss. <laughs> recently so i'm sure that there will be some some pitch hitting that i may reach out to you for between now and season seven um but in the meantime uh just an update for anybody who's interested uh the order of Chiraka still hasn't returned <laughs> uh we we uh the i think the first time i was gonna say the last time uh you were on the show but it wasn't that long ago it hasn't been that long since you were on but i think the first time you were on we talked about Oh Lord, what were the episodes? Uh, what's my line? I think. Yeah. Uh, when, when Spike hired the Order of Taraka, who just never ever stopped hunting the Slayer, and then of course they disappeared. Stopped immediately. They stopped immediately <laughs> and have never been heard from again. So just wanted to update that uh, still have not heard back from the Order of Taraka. <sighs> Anyways. Um, so, anything we need to address before we just dive into these three episodes? No, let's just get to it. All right, well, let me drop the spoiler warning that everybody, what everybody's really here for, the spoiler warning. Uh, Conversations <laughs> with Dead People, not your typical rewatch and review podcast. Uh, we're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, uh, which means there's going to be spoilers, and a lot of them, so I recommend if... Uh, for some reason, you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once. Press pause on the podcast and go do that, uh, and then just come back when you're ready. We're going to be here forever. Let's see what I did there? Um, yeah, I'm so witty. Uh, anyways, with all of that, with uh, that business and my bad joke out of the way, uh, if you're ready, let's go to work. Okay. All right, so we'll start off with uh, 517 Forever, uh, which is, is this the directorial debut of marty noxon or has she directed before i can't remember i honestly don't know okay i can't i wanted to say this was this one's written and directed by marty noxon um mm -hmm. and i thought this was maybe her directorial debut but in any case uh this is the the debut of uh joel gray shows up yeah. which um 
I, his character is something else, but man, I love Joel Gray. I've been excited to get to him. I forgot how brief his scene was, but uh, any moment he's on camera is a delight. I, I love him. Uh, all right, Melanie, how'd you feel about Forever? Um, it's not one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Season five is my favorite season. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the arc is really tight and there's not a lot of fat, but you know, the summer's ladies are hurting. I'm not a fan of that. Right. Are you a, are you a fan of Dawn? I actually am. Okay, um, man, what a relief. It's so and- refreshing. <laughs> In the past few podcasts, you've talked about her being written younger. Yeah. I think it's actually the other way around. The um, In season one and two and three, uh, Buffy and her friends were all written older than they would be. Dawn is very much like I was at her age. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I guess just by contrast, it probably seems. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not prepared to back off completely my accusation that the writers... <laughs> took more than one opportunity to deliberately infantilize Dawn a couple times in this season. But I take your point. Uh, it doesn't help that I think, um, I think we talked about this before, maybe that uh, in terms of casting, as far as age appropriate casting on the show, uh, Faith, Eliza Dishku is the closest they've ever come to casting an actor uh, who was actually the age of the character they were portraying. Yeah, I think uh, Charisma Carpenter was like 28 when the series started. Yeah, yeah, they were all way... Uh, I forgot that she was that much older. I was going to say that I think Xander, maybe Nicholas Brendan, was the the one who was the most advanced beyond his character's age, but at any rate, weren't any of them 15 years old when they were <laughs> portraying 15 and 16-year-olds? Right. Um, so why? So why is this one not your favorite? It's just, you know, everybody's hurting. It's, I, it's just the suffering that turns yeah. you off? Yeah. Just, you know, want to hug everybody. <laughs> um, so I talked last week um, when Arlo and I were discussing the body, I mentioned the fact one of my favorite things about the body is that it uh, it avoids the either of the usual uh, television tropes when you have a beloved character uh, killed off. Usually, most TV shows, um, they'll either show you the character dying uh, to milk the emotion out of you that way, or you'll jump right to the funeral to milk the emotion out of you that way. And the body did neither of those things. We were just left in the really, really uncomfortable, painful uh, sort of fog of the middle of that whole process. Um, and Arlo, I love my... the body, but I can't watch it. Yeah, it's rough. Then... It's rough. Uh, but Arlo reminded me that this episode uh, that forever actually shows us the funeral, which I'd forgotten. But um, yes, uh, but I, I liked it. I liked the way they handled the funeral in this episode. Um, it was I don't know. We didn't really dwell on the funeral itself. And the wrap up of the funeral gave me one of my favorite shots from this episode, actually, which is the sort of transition after everybody has left the funeral and it's just Buffy standing at the graveside and we pull in tight and the color fades out of the scene. Uh, At first it just looks like we're bleaching the color out of the scene to, to show how, um, how bleak Buffy's life feels at the moment. But then we realize that 
it's actually we're transitioning into night because she's been standing there the whole time and then angel just walks up behind her which was a lovely moment yes and um it sort of encapsulates how easy it is to get lost in your grief because i mean practically you know you can't just watch her watch the grave for six hours or whatever but uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it when when you're grieving sometimes it's just like you get lost in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Angel pops back up and um, I've, I've got my feelings about the whole Angel and Buffy relationship, but I do love the scene. Um, I like yes. the way that scene plays out between the two of them. Um, let's see. I'm scanning through my notes. Uh, oh, that was the final use of the Buffy and Angel theme. Was it really? Uh, supposedly. In my in my research, I'm I was informed that that is the last time on Buffy the Vampire Slayer that they use the official Buffy and Angel theme uh, in that scene between the two of them. So, I know there's like a music swelling point with them when uh, he comes back in season seven, but I don't remember if it was like a riff on that or not. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to. When we get there, we'll have to find out if I was lied to and there, and, and thus have uh, bought into the lie. But, um, anyways, uh, so what else happens in this episode? Um, Giles has a really lovely moment with, um, just Dream. yeah, by himself back in his in his apartment yeah. uh, when he's listening to um, Tales of Brave Ulysses, which is the the song that he and Joyce were listening to in band candy. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. Yeah. Which I wanted to go back and rewatch that scene and see if it's the same moment of the song that we're hearing. Do you happen to know? Uh, I think so, but I'm not positive. Okay. Cause I, I know in band candy, that scene was played for laughs. Um, I think they were high at the time. Yeah. Maybe. And he, and, and Giles was just like, Shh, listen, listen to the beat or whatever. <laughs> He's just focused on the music. Um, but I couldn't remember if it was the exact same, uh, selection from the song that played here. Obviously the mood here is totally different. I uh, think, um, the, the, the point in the song here is a little, just a little bit before that part that okay. they were listening to where he hushes her. Okay. Um, Man, what else? My notes are really vague. I, I didn't write a lot of specifics about that. Uh, what do you want to talk about uh, in this episode? Um, Besides the grief and suffering, what does this episode give us? Uh, well, I just thought it was really interesting that they kind of brought a new context to the uh, funeral home scene at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen Buffy in funeral homes before, mostly in seasons one and two. And, um, you know... Usually she's there hunting. Right. And now she's not so much. Well, she's still hunting. She's just hunting for the right casket. But yeah, they use the, the, the show does that so well where they, um, I think particularly in this season, I feel like I've commented on it a few times in this season where they play on our expectations. Having seen, you know, four seasons of this show already, we, we think we know what to expect and, and uh, the show will play on that. And they use the music cues like here. It's sort of eerie haunting music or, or suspenseful music that's playing while she's walking around the funeral home. So of course you expect her to lift the lid and there to be a vampire in there. Right. 
Um, I love it when the show does that. Usually. Sometimes it's clumsy, but I, I typically I like it, and I liked it in this case. Um, yeah. I noticed that uh, nobody touches Don as much as they touch Buffy. Like, Buffy gets hugs. Don gets, like, a pat on the shoulder. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up, because uh, I wondered if that was weird. Like, particularly at the graveside. Uh, yeah. In the funeral, um, we see several... Uh, I think we see Xander's the first and I know Giles goes over and gives her a hug and I can't remember. I feel like maybe everybody kind of walks over and at least puts a hand on her, but I don't remember anybody. I don't, I don't remember anybody even so much as like kind of patting Dawn on the back <laughs> that whole time. Yeah, I think um, Xander or Giles like kind of puts a hand on her shoulder. Okay. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, so you're I think it kind of feeds into her arc with yeah. uh, uh, doing stuff for attention, the the skipping school and the the uh, petty theft. The kleptomania. I wanted to ask you about that. That uh, does that ever lead anywhere significant? I know it pops up a couple times, like they use it as a, I don't know, just a a beat in a few episodes. But I don't remember that ever becoming like the crux of an episode am i mistaken uh, it you are mistaken it's from it shows up in the musical episode yeah. everybody thinks i that... I, I remembered that it was in there but is that is it like a major element kind of everybody thinks dawn's the one who summoned the uh, summoned sweet because she's got the pendant right but it turns out xander did okay all right um all right that's fair I just thought, especially when I, I can't, is it this episode? Yeah, it's this episode where she snatches the earrings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When that happened, I was like, it seems like the show's building up to something, but I didn't remember it ever really paying off. I thought. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere big. Yeah. Okay. Um, unless you consider her stealing the book and the spell components. I guess that's not exactly the same thing as her sort of kleptomania, but still. <sighs> Dawn has a thing for stealing. Um, although Willow does the same thing in just a couple of episodes. Yeah. Uh, so I, you said that you're a fan of Dawn, which, uh, again, is refreshing to have a, another fan of Dawn on the show. Um, How would you feel about her, her sort of arc in this episode? Like, because I've seen a lot of people say that uh, this is another one of the, you know, people cut Dawn no slack, especially with things like the get out, the get out, get out, get out scene or whatever, mm -hmm. which I kind of took up for. But um, this is another one of those episodes where she's, people accuse her of seeming particularly like petulant and juvenile or whatever when she's huffing and turning her back on Willow and everything. And I mean, I honestly, it makes sense to me, um, both because of her age and because, I mean, she's grieving. She's going to be angry at stupid. Mm -hmm. She's going to overreact to things. Mm -hmm. But also, like, she gets she gets some attention from, from Willow and Tara, but they don't really know what to do. Like, they don't know how to help her. Yeah. And she doesn't really, it's not just physical affection, but Buffy's busy and Giles is busy, like, with the funeral and all that stuff. And... Uh, Buffy's trying once again not to 
show any physical any um any potential weakness right which she like she did with riley but she's not thinking about how this is affecting dawn and um yeah i would definitely get petty and petulant if uh you know my mom died and nobody seemed to care how it was affecting me i know the show hasn't actually moved on from it because it it does become a an important element of like the season finale um but in episodes like this it almost feels like the show is really trying to move past the whole dawn's not a real person thing uh because dawn mentions it a few times um throughout these three episodes the people talk about how upset she is and she will say yeah my mom just died and i'm not a real person she says that several times and the whole uh your mom died gets way more attention than the notion of oh yeah you're not a real person i don't know it just feels like dawn mentions it a few times like yeah i'm still dealing with that and no one really kind of acknowledges that which um, it's definitely she's got a lot of heavy stuff to deal with yeah yeah i mean i i guess i guess i'll cut the other characters some slack because they they've sort of particularly Buffy has sort of has already kind of made up her mind. You are a real person. You're my real sister. And she doesn't really want to deal with the notion that oh, she, she's not actually a real person. So I get it. But just in terms of storytelling, I'm like, yeah, guys, she's, she's, she's dealing with some stuff, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cut her a break. Uh, that scene that I was just asking about with how petulant she was being when she's staying with Tara and, and Willow, I actually had a little more, I was a little more uncomfortable with Tara and Willow in that scene than I was with Dawn. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. Why does not, why doesn't Tara tell Dawn about her mom, just like she did with Buffy when Buffy was worried before the surgery? Yeah. I mean, it's probably for, again, to fall back on for storytelling reasons, maybe they didn't right. want to just repeat the same information that the listener, that the, the viewers had already seen, but um, in fiction, it makes much more sense that Tara would have had that conversation with uh, with Dawn as well. Absolutely, um, especially like, um, she says I know how you how you must be feeling and Dawn's immediate reaction is no, you can't. Mm-hmm. Um. But you know, I kind of want. So I'm I'm really about to to praise Tara here for a second. Uh, that particular scene where she says, uh, "I know how you're feeling," and Dawn's like, "No, you don't. You can't know how I feel," or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that certainly would have been a an opportunity for Tara to say, "Actually, I do," and to to go into all that. But uh, I kind of like the fact that she doesn't. Um, because it it shows that Tara's not necessarily um I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is threatened or insulted or whatever to hear Dawn say <laughs> that the way that Willow is sort of threatened and insulted later when Tara seems to be saying the same thing to her you don't know how I feel right um I don't know it's, it's just one of those little things that I don't know if that was an intentional parallel that was being drawn there or if they just didn't have the time to fit that speech in but um, I was going to say I I have more problems with Willow and Tara in that scene, uh, mostly because of how kind of awkward 
they're being and i guess it's mostly willow how sort how really like uh, i don't know it, it was just dawn seems appropriately petulant for the situation she's in and uh dawn or uh, uh willow was really treating her like a six-year-old i don't know it was it was weird to me but um i can can understand it to an extent being awkward because you don't know what to do you don't know what's going to help yeah but um they went over the top a bit yeah but my favorite thing that comes out of that scene is i love how when as soon as dawn raises the whole you know i want i want to bring my mother back um the dynamic shifts dramatically like tara gets deadly serious I love how almost angry and and forceful Tara was when she sort of steps to the to the foreground and is putting her foot down and saying no no we cannot do this and Willow's in the background being all I mean I guess we can't because maybe the spell would go wrong or whatever and Tara's like that's not the point. (laughs) Yeah, there's Um, there's definitely some foreshadowing with just just to um, I think it's intervention, isn't it? That the are you looking for dark willow yeah uh, i think it's tough love ah, okay uh it's, yeah, the, it's it the third one we're going to be talking about but actually i think all three of these episodes uh do an awful lot of foreshadowing of season six yes i have that a lot written down foreshadowing for this foreshadowing for this mm-hmm. yeah this like um a few of these episodes i will we'll talk more when we actually get to tough love i'm I'm not a huge fan of tough love because it, it does some necessary stuff, some plot movement and it moves characters into position for the leading into the end of the season. But i almost feel like these things are setting up more for season six, even than they are really for the end of season five. Uh, there's so much yeah, stuff in here. Like it's near the end of season five where we're kind of in the second half and how much did they know they were going to do and yeah. how they were going to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is all obviously foreshadowing uh, Willow. This, this is, I was going to say the first, but it's not, we've, we've seen hints already. This is just one more. This is a pretty big step towards uh, Willow's sort of path of darkness from season six. Like she, <laughs> she nudges Dawn in the direction of resurrection. Um, yeah. And it's clear that like, She's she's already starting to do stuff behind Tara's back. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. She's already she's already hiding stuff, and I don't think she outright. I guess she outright lies here. She out she lies in. Um, uh, I think it's tough love when she says when they tell her, "Don't go after Glory," and she's like, "All right, I won't go after Glory," and then she immediately goes after Glory. Um, yeah, uh, when uh, she ter- she does some terrible lying when uh when tara discovers the book is gone yeah and starts like wondering you know what else she took and what she's gonna do mm-hmm. and um will is just like um i don't think she took anything but we should look because uh uh I, yes we should look it, <laughs> it was completely ridiculous that they didn't have tara pick up on that yeah well speaking of how ridiculous it is that characters don't pick up on stuff <laughs> before we, I, I want to 
pretend that that is our segue into the next episode. We're not going to segue yet, but that is a beautiful segue. So I'm just going to hang on that. That one's going to hang right there. Just remember that. Um, before we segue into intervention, I just want to say I, I was overjoyed that Joel Gray makes his appearance in this episode. So we need to talk about that whole scene. Absolutely. And of course, that gives me an opportunity to talk about my beloved Spike, um, who, well, at the very top of this episode, he had a great moment where he comes to deliver flowers for Joyce. And he has a, I, I personally find it kind of a, little, a touching scene where he explains that, you know, this isn't about Buffy. This is about Joyce. I liked her. She was the only one of you lot that I actually liked. Yeah. And um, it's just, it's really sweet. My own, only note on that is spike heart flower. <laughs> and that's so. your note. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. If I, if I took my notes on uh, with pen and paper instead of uh, in my computer, I'd probably have all sort of sorts of, hearts and star <laughs> stickers all over it. It would look like my notebook would look like a 14 year old girl. Um, but yeah, so that was a touching moment. And then uh, we get spike offering to help Dawn, which again, I'm sure some people will look at it as this is entirely selfish. And, and Dawn even calls him out for it. She's like, you know, I'm not stupid. I know you're trying to get into my sister's pants. That's the only reason you're doing this. Um, but being the spike apologist that I am, I, I read his uh, motivation here as we'll say at least 80% pure. <laughs> his, really? his, his, uh, his thing of when he breaks down and he's like, I just don't like seeing uh, summer's, summer's taking, taking it so hard it. on the chin or whatever. Obviously. Yes. There is the whole notion that he, he's helping uh, Dawn and that will please Buffy. But he he consciously is aware and admits the fact that Buffy would not approve, approve of this. This is not going to get him points with Buffy. Right. Uh, and so um, I just, I really love the relationship that builds up gradually between Spike and Dawn. I like the, the, the kind of rapport that they have and the fact that he calls her a little bit. And I don't know, I, I love that whole thing. And so ill-advised his decision to help her yes but i feel like it was mostly at least coming from a good place i think it was too but i don't think it i don't have the at that high of a percentage i'd say like 60 40 no oh, okay that's fair <laughs> that's fair i i uh, cut spike a break more than maybe he deserves but i don't think um like when he helped her break into the magic box and and that's when she learned she was the key you know his whole defense at that point was i think if i'm remembering this correctly it was basically she was going to do it anyways i went along to make sure she was safe and i i don't think he ever has to defend himself for this for his actions here but that seems like an appropriate defense like mm -hmm. he, he knows she's going to do it in fact in this episode he even he tells her no you can't go down there you have to stay here i'll go do it and she's like no i'm going and he's like oh look at that a bitty buffy or whatever so he's uh -huh. acknowledging the fact that she's going to do what she's going to do at least if he's with her he can you know protect her in some small way i mean you could right. you could argue that if he never took her to see doc she never would have known about the gora demon and she wouldn't have gone down in the sewers to get eaten by a three-headed monster but whatever <laughs> that's nitpicking um, so I wanted to ask you there's a really simple 
uh, explanation for this, but I still want to ask the question. Should somebody have wondered how it was that Spike could just walk straight into Doc's house? You know, it it didn't occur to me at all. But um, we do know he's a demon. Right. So right. that's why. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it never even occurred to me. Uh, it only occurred to me, like I said, real, real easy explanation because he's a demon. Um, but when they walked in and uh, at first I was like, at first you're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's a shop because he's got so much stuff around. But it's clearly this guy's house. And I was like, wait, he just walked into this guy's house and he says he's never met him before. So he couldn't have been invited. But yeah, it's because he's a demon, obviously. Yeah. Um, God, I love Joel Gray. He's so cool. Um <laughs> Uh, for those so, that don't know, which I'm the, uh, the Peter and the Wolf music that he, he was humming Peter and the Wolf while he's looking for the book that will help him help Don. Right, and I I I wondered if there's some meaning to that. I I feel like I recognized it as soon as he started whistling. I was like, "What is that? Oh, that's Peter and the Wolf." And I was like, my brain started trying to analyze what is the significance of that, and I'm sure that there is something. I'm sure someone could tell me, oh, it's because themes of Peter and the Wolf are this, this, and this, and that's what's going on in this scene, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I don't really know Peter and Wolf that well, but I felt like it was like a predator-prey thing, and as we know, um, he is actually a, um, a worshiper of glory, mm-hmm. and we'll see him again, and he he's the reason that, uh, the, the not the Hellmouth, the portal opens Right. Because he was there to uh, to cut Dawn. That that that's a very good read. The whole predator and prey thing. I'm sure that I'm sure you're right. That's what it was. Um, I loved when when they were leaving and Dawn tries to pay and he doesn't take her money. It's just a fistful of singles. <laughs> yeah. What I. I was about to take that to a weird place, but maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> we'll just, yeah, I, I guess we'll just wonder how much did she think it was supposed to cost instead of wondering why does she have a pocket full of crumpled up singles? Um, uh, yeah, what did Spike think that they were going to have to pay? Yeah, I know. It was like, you would definitely expect there to need to be money. Yeah, there needs, Spike of all people would think that you have to buy this kind of thing. Well. Wow. Right. Whatever. Um, so clearly uh, we need to. Well, OK, before we move to the, the end, we should talk a little bit about the rubber, the three headed rubber monster. Cause... Oh, that was terrible. And <laughs> did, was it just me that thought, you know, those um, like 90s things where you it's like a piece of fabric and you can put a water balloon in it and then play catch with it. Uh huh. That's that's what the eggs reminded me of. Like, oh yeah. When he went to pick it up, it was clearly soft and squishy. Uh huh. Like when she, I think there was a scene where she kind of fell down, sort of on the nest, and all of the eggs were clearly pillows or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. The uh, I guess the sort of genuine thrill or or kind of emotional satisfaction I got from that scene as goofy as it was um, uh, was when Spike was almost eaten 
in order to protect Don. Like he gets yeah. gets practically bitten in half, and and uh, as they're running away, Don is like, "All, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry." And he's like, "Did you get it? Then don't be sorry." Right. Uh, I love Spike. Um, <laughs> oh, okay, so before we move on, uh, something that I noticed uh, with at Glory's Art Deco building. Mm-hmm. That is gorgeous, and I want to live there. Right. Um, behind one of the couches, there's a um, a piece of art uh, by Tara Lempica, hmm. um, who is a 1920s Art Deco uh, artist um, who uh, was bisexual, oh. and the the piece itself was called Group of Four Nudes. And it's supposed to kind of symbolize the power of femininity and kind of exclude the male gaze. And it's there specifically, you know, as a a female gaze, but uh, of women rather than of men and how beautiful and powerful women can be. And it just seemed really appropriate both to uh, Glory and the series in general. That's that's an awesome catch i i had no idea i don't even remember yeah no that's awesome i'm usually the one who's looking at background details to to spot things written on walls or whatever and i I didn't even notice that my eye i was like i know that painting style that's cool what is that um so do you think i i was about to ask if if you think that that there's a mixed message in that scene because this is this is also where we get glory um, kind of needlessly ripping off her own dress. Um, but then you explained how it's about the female gaze uh, directed towards other females. Or yeah. Whatever. So I so I don't know. Maybe maybe it's appropriate. Maybe I don't know. It it, it was not until this last rewatch that I realized that. She's not changing the outfit. Like when she takes off the red dress, she isn't magicking a new dress underneath. Uh-huh. It's just her. Right. Yeah, actually, it took me two watches uh, to notice because when uh, she tears off the red dress because Willow's just shredded it with um, uh, nice. shattered, shattered glass. Yeah. And uh, in the scene when uh, she's being peppered with the, the shattered glass, um, you're seeing the red dress get all torn to shreds. Well, I didn't realize that at first. At first I thought, is that, is she like, does she have black blood? I don't know. It was weird. I, I, I couldn't figure out what I was seeing. And then when she tore off the <laughs> dress and had the black slip on underneath, I was like, oh, is that what that was? Yeah. Um, of course, why didn't the slip get all torn up? But <laughs> whatever. Uh, so, uh, wait, did we jump the gun? Is that, um, yeah, that's all the way in tough love, right? We just completely. Well, these, three, these three episodes go well together as like discussion wise. There's a lot of stuff that carries over really well. Yeah, that's my fault. I said same scene uh, and it's not the same scene. It's two episodes later. I apologize. You're, you uh, spotted the the painting in this episode, not in the one when Willow goes all dark Willow, right? Right. Yeah. When uh, okay. she helps Jinx to the thing. Yeah because he's been stabbed yeah. in his fleshy, fleshy bits. <laughs> Poor Jinx. Um, okay, uh, the final scene, uh, because it really got me. 
Yeah. I think it's it's in one way it's development of Buffy um you know moving forward with showing emotion mm-hmm. uh, from when she refused to cry in front of anybody or um you know she she cried a little bit I think in front of Spike when when she first found out about Joyce her tumor but she wasn't she didn't like intend to he just happened to show up there right she doesn't intentionally cry in front of anyone and not since angel broke up with her i think mm-hmm. and um so she, she's moving a little forward and of course it leads right into the next episode with her little quest right yeah um so in a i i apologize i'm not going to remember the episode number or title but in an earlier episode this season i commented that uh the the moments that we get of sort of genuine like sisterly affection between dawn and buffy those always affect me for some reason i love any time that we get to see the two of them be stop sort of being snippy with each other and actually acknowledge affection um that that is super powerful to me. So um, to record this podcast, I've rewatched this episode three times in the last week. Uh, And every time in that final scene, I get teary watching the, the two of them break down, particularly watching Buffy finally have her breakdown. Um, Yeah. And then when she, when, when mommy, yeah, I was going to say when Joyce, scratches at the door and she spins around and says mommy i'm like oh god (laughs) um yeah that was yeah there's a lot of um buffy doesn't know what to do buffy doesn't know how to adult Mm -hmm. in this episode that uh really kind of gets shelved until season six but you know she she doesn't really she doesn't know what to do she's never been in this situation but neither had her mom you know, been in so many situations at some point and she's like, mom will take care of it. And then later on in, um, in tough love, you know, she's like, Giles will take care of it. And I totally get the desire to have an adult, but, uh, like that tweet, I need an adultier adult. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so we probably can't move out of, uh, out of this without at least mentioning the fact that we acknowledge uh ww jacobs 1902 short story the monkey's paw which is so very clearly indeed like the inspiration for this whole episode with the careful what you wish for kind of thing yes which i it's nice that uh they don't actually you know show you what could go wrong right it's not it's nice that nobody has a copy of the monkey's paw on their shelf or anything <laughs> too (laughs) yeah um i also kind of like i've seen some people complain about the sort of weirdness of that spell that uh i've seen people ask does that mean that joyce crawled out of her grave and physically walked to her door and then when dawn rips the picture in half where does the body go and i'm like it's it's magic i kind of like the ambiguity of it i like how yeah, I don't know. I just and also that's straight from the monkey's paw. That's how that's how it happens in the the original story. Is that 
the corpse is at the doorstep and he throws the monkey paw on the fire, I think is what he does. And it breaks the spell. And then all of a sudden there's just no corpse on the doorstep. Yeah. But anyways, I liked it. I, I, I didn't want to nitpick that. Um, okay. Let's move. Unless there's anything else, uh, let's nope. move on to intervention. Um, which this also is another one of those episodes that maybe taken by itself seems just like it's moving pieces around on the board and not necessarily a strong episode on its own, but uh, I actually kind of liked it. Not kind of. I liked it a lot. I like this episode a lot. I do too. Okay. Um, so what do you like about it? Or what do you, how do you feel about intervention? Um, I really just, I like, I like kind of the silliness of it. And also, um, like, they, there's a lot of really good lines. It's a Jane Espenson episode. Mm-hmm. It's, it's even if like she somehow wrote something completely terrible, I would find it hilarious because she's really good at one-liners. Yeah, I've I've got a lot of quotes pulled out of this episode. Same. <laughs> um. So I. I've seen a couple of people complain that the Buffy bot is just sort of introduced um, because they know they're going to need that Buffy bot in a later episode. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's a weird complaint, but I've seen a number of people say that this episode feels like they just drop the Buffy bot in there so that they will have it available to use in a later story. Um, I don't know that that's necessary. I mean, it probably is true. That probably is actually why they did it, but, uh, well, of... it was at the end of "I Was Made to Love You" that he gave it, gave Warren the stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they definitely set it up. Which that was also a, a Jane Espenson uh, episode, right? She wrote that one as well. So I don't know. I'm pretty sure she did. I think she wrote both of those sort of robot episodes. Um, but I mean, yeah, it was certainly set up. But um, I don't know. Well, I mean, it makes sense to me. Like, probably Spike thought it was a healthier coping mechanism than just getting over Buffy, which it's not. But <laughs> he probably felt that way. Yeah, I want to jump to the end, but I'm not going to do that. So, uh, you said that it's a, a lighter episode, or that that you know there's some humor in it, and yeah. I, that is a welcome. I love shows that just you know rip your heart out episode after episode, but uh, it is nice to every once in a while get a break and. I think I think Espenson has even said that one of kind of the motivations behind telling this story at this point was to give Sarah Michelle Gellar a little bit of a break <laughs> to let her to let her do some fun stuff in the midst of this really grim sort of uh arc that the character yeah. is going through um and so that's refreshing It is indeed I will never quite understand. I know at the end of the episode, they kind of turn it into a joke, but I will just never understand how in, uh, I was made to love you. Uh, the Scooby gang, like instantly knew that April was a robot (laughs) and here they never figure it out. Yeah. They kind of like hand wave it as we, we thought it was weird behavior in light of the fact that you're grieving, Mm -hmm. but, um, like even her the Buffy bot speech patterns are a little different. She's she's perkier and uh I think really the way she spoke, you know, 
you're a lesbian. You're my best friend. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they should have caught on sooner. Yeah. Uh, the first time that uh, they meet her, like in, in the graveyard, uh, when Xander and Anya meet her, there's a moment where Xander is like kind of tilting his head. And, and when I was first rewatching this, I was like, oh, does he figure it out immediately? But no, <laughs> never figures it out. Um, I also love the fact that uh, the Buffy bot says, Anya, how's your money? <laughs> or something like I that. Love, I love how excited Anya is about how about that Buffy asked. She's yeah. like, oh, thank you. Yes, yes. That was her th- being thrilled about that was lovely. Um, so let's see what, how can I frame, how can I phrase this? Um, Spike's post-coital hair is a thing of beauty. Oh my God. Yes. Which I think, I think he has like through the rest of the episode, doesn't he? Like, I feel like he, we get the first post-coital look at his must up hair. And then I think his hair is just must up for the rest of the episode. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, um, how can I put this delicately? There were two off-camera implied oral sex jokes in this episode. Or not? Uh, they, they weren't jokes. I remember at least one. Uh, there's, there's, there's one when Spike is kind of moving down out of frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> Clearly, that was an implied thing. And then there's yeah. this scene later when uh, Spike is just sitting there satisfied with a cigarette in his mouth, and all of a sudden the Buffy bot stands up from in front of him, and you're like, oh, geez, okay. I don't think I noticed that at all. <laughs> I mean, he even is uh, buttoning his, like, uh, fastening his belt after that. So uh, that was, mm, all right. <laughs> anyway. Did you think that it was... Uh, let's talk about the Vision Quest. Okay. Because I I actually like the Vision Quest thing, the way it's handled in this episode. Um, I know that it's sort of a, a trope that genre shows sometimes fall back on having a, a Vision Quest sort of info dump things, but I like the way it was done here, and it, it kind of made sense here. And um, it gave us another opportunity to see the first Slayer, although the voiceover was weird. Yeah, it was, it was the form of the first layer, but I don't think it was the first layer talking. Right. It was, it was meant to look like her, but it wasn't actually her, but still it it was weird to hear that voice. Um, The other weird thing is that that vision quest starts with them driving out into the desert. And uh, the scene of them pulling up in the car is shot through a, through the filter of heat haze to show that, oh yeah, they're in the desert. It is hot. And Buffy even yeah. makes a joke about, uh, you're going to find my bleached bones to which Giles has the wonderful response yes. of, come on, it takes much longer than a week to bleach bones. Um, we're bundled up. Yeah. Like, they're wearing, they're both wearing, they're both wearing sweaters and jackets. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I was wondering about that as well. <laughs> Buffy's wearing a turtleneck sweater for crying out loud. Like um, I know Buffy doesn't really dress for the weather, but like she's definitely worn coats when I've been like, it cannot be cold enough for for that coat. Yeah, but um, just so glaring in this episode. 
Now it doesn't, it still doesn't make sense in the context of the show. Uh, they're supposed to be in the desert. We saw the whole heat haze thing. It's the desert. You're going to die. Um, why are you wearing a sweater? But I do want to mention that on my, on my last rewatch, there's a shot where I think it's after she finds that big rock and she just kind of sits down on that rock to wait. I feel like there's a shot kind of a close up on her where it looks like snow, a couple of snowflakes drift into frame. Um, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are other explanations. It could have been. It's also like the desert uh, gets really cold at night. I know. Yeah. So I don't know why she would necessarily wear it out there before it, the sun went down, but yeah, she would definitely want to have it with her. Yeah. Anyways, other than that, uh, I did like the way the whole vision quest played out, and uh, I like the Hello Kitty reference. Um, the hokey pokey joke was fun. Yeah. Um, but what, uh, okay. So we need to talk about the death is your gift thing. Yeah. Uh, which in terms of kind of a, a line of dialogue a revelation or whatever, a, a statement of purpose that the show is giving us, that's right up there with, um, Oh Lord. What was, uh, what did Dracula tell her? What was the line that Dracula told her? Um, it was something about her darkness. Dang it. Uh, I can't remember how it went, but, but there have been allusions earlier in the season yeah, to uh, the nature of her, of the Slayer power being darkness. And then the whole death is your gift, which we know where the season's going. We know what that means right? in, in the short term, at least, but uh, the, the larger implication of that I think is significant think, as well. Like a lot of it is to do with, we know, we see in season seven that, you know, the shadow men infused the first layer with a demon so that she could fight demons. So it's multi-layered because she death is her gift in that she, you know, is protecting mankind by killing vampires and demons. Mm-hmm. You've got, um, you know, she's going to sacrifice herself for Dawn. And really the, the position of slayer in general is kind of uh you know slayer is sacrifice mm-hmm. you have you sacrifice your life you sacrifice your your relationships you sacrifice everything but buffy complains about it all the time she's sacrificing all this stuff that she wants to do especially early on in the series mm-hmm. she complains about it where she's giving up all sorts of things to be the slayer and she doesn't even want to be the slayer now uh, the spirit, in addition to death is your gift, the spirit guide also tells her that uh, love is pain. And I, I don't know if maybe I should be embarrassed to say that. I don't know if this was intentional on their part. I'm sure it was. <laughs> These writers are super smart. They're way smarter than me, but um, I actually like to read that line. The whole love is pain. I like to read that as a lead into the way this episode ends with um we get the first deliberate like willing show of honest affection from buffy to spike when she leans in to kiss him as a you know in gratitude of when she says what you did for me uh and dawn that was real i won't forget it mm-hmm. that is i mean she certainly doesn't love him yet if she ever does which 
we could argue. Um, but that was Spike enduring a lot of pain on her and Dawn's behalf, and uh, it earns him an honest moment of affection from Buffy. Yeah, and he's in a lot of pain. Like, I imagine he, the way he's all bruised up, kissing even gently would probably... <laughs> yeah. That was some good makeup. I want to give them props. We Maybe we might want to question, the, again, the physiology of vampires and how it works in this universe. Like, I don't, I don't know that we see, we see Spike get winded a lot and vampires don't need to breathe. So I don't know why he gets winded. And if a creature doesn't have a heartbeat and a circulation, would they really bleed and swell up the way he does? But I don't, I don't even care. It was, it was a, (laughs) it was a particularly good makeup job of making him look like Xander of all people even seems to feel a moment of sympathy when he says the guy was just so beat up or however however he says it um yeah it was genuinely kind of gruesome the after effect yeah especially the eye the the swelled shut eye mm-hmm. just he was really beat up yeah um what do you think about tara's reaction to the the idea of buffy sleeping with spike it seems out of character for Tara and considering how she reacts later, kind of weird. Okay. Thank you. I had the exact same reaction. Cause like Tara's usually the most, um, I don't know, like accepting, accepting. And she's kind of like, she's, I think the most mentally sound. That's not really what I mean, but you know, she, she's, She's good at figuring things out and, and figuring out her herself and, and her friends and emotions and all that. In some and ways, in some ways, she's the most mature of this group. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now I feel like that was just one of those scenes that was, it was meant to be humorous. Like that was, meant, yeah. that was meant to be a joke. And as a joke, I guess it's kind of funny, but I, I did kind of, I did wince a little bit because Tara really is the one. And a lot of it is foreknowledge. We know that a year from now, Tara is the one that Buffy goes to, to <laughs> sort of confess about her relationship. And Tara is a much, handles it much differently at that point. But I don't know. Even so, it was I was a little uncomfortable that she, that Tara of all people made that joke. Yeah. yeah I think if they had switched the lines between Willow and, and Tara, it would have made much more sense. Mm-hmm. All right. What else do we want to talk about? We both said we had a ton of quotes. Do, are there any favorite quotes that we haven't mentioned? You're the big bad. <laughs> oh, Spike, you're the big bad. Uh, Angel's lame. His hair goes straight up and he's bloody stupid. That's that's a classic. That is a classic right there. Um, I, already oh, met- I can make sketches when she's talking on the balcony. With, oh, yeah. Uh, Willow, we did it lots of times. I can make sketches. That was just amazing. Yeah. Oh, God, no. Um, uh, what else? Damn your sinister attraction. Uh, I also like Glory's line of, what the hell is that, and why is its hair that color? Yes. <laughs> that was beautiful. Um, anyways, so many, so many good quotes. So many great quotes. Uh, all right. Let's move into tough love. 
um, I, I've already alluded to. Of the three, this is my least favorite, but uh, there, there's still some good stuff in here. I just might have some more nitpicks about Tough Love that maybe than the rest of them. So, how'd you feel about? It? And this is uh, this is written by Rebecca Rand Kirshner, and I know that uh, she's written some episodes before. I didn't look up to see what they were. I apologize. I did not do my homework, and I know she's got more episodes after this. Um, so I'm not. I, I'm not making any statement about her abilities as a writer. I also know she goes on to be a writer for Gilmore Girls, I think. Yes. Okay. So, um, obviously, obviously she's a, she's a good writer, but, um, the, the writing of this episode is one of my problems. Uh, or may, maybe I should say the execution, but I'm going to say the writing of the episode. Uh, but what are your thoughts on tough love? Um, it kind of feels like it is, a continuation of the previous two episodes in, in that it's continuing the uh, Buffy-Dawn dynamic where she she has the two extremes with Dawn. She, she either is completely useless for Dawn's wise or she goes very, very authoritarian. Mm-hmm. You can see, like... In in uh, intervention, there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of tough love there, and then in this one, she does a lot of stuff that like you think she's she's playing adult. She's she's folding laundry. She's doing the dishes. She she knows that these are things that mom took care of, and now she has to take care of them. But she doesn't really know what she's doing, and so she's just really focused on on uh, how to how to be a mom without thinking about, you know, the, for lack of a better word, softer aspects of parenting. That is a great catch. Um, There, there are other very, very overt examples of her playing adult in this episode. And that's kind of what I was focusing on. But I love the fact that you just pointed out the, the episode opens with her washing dishes. And then there's the scene of her folding laundry and those um, that didn't even dawn on me. No pun intended. Didn't didn't even register tantalizing of dawn in the past three episodes this especially in this one when she does talks about the chores the chore chart and she's just like you want gold stars you can have gold stars it's like dude yeah you of all people you you've been 13 or 14 year old girl and you you undoubtedly did not like being patronized any more than than dawn does yeah but she's not she's not thinking about you know this is my sister who, you know, is, is going through stuff that I went through and also stuff that I've never gone through. Stuff is really tough right now, and I should be supportive of her. She's just thinking of it as, I have all this responsibility. I have to take care of everything, or my life is ruined. And there, And so, again, I wasn't necessarily thinking of it in these terms originally, but you you pointing out how much sort of infantilizing she does of dawn with the gold stars that's a great example um is again these are meant to be real these characters are meant to be like real people and they react to things emotionally and emotions are by their very definition not logical and everything so some of this stuff should be allowed characters can be allowed to act irrationally because they're they're emotional beings but from a storytelling standpoint, we go from the one extreme of her infantilizing Dawn 
Uh, and then the most shocking example of Buffy playing adult, in air quotes, um, after basically begging Giles to, I can't do this. Can you be the grown-up? You have much bigger feet than I do, or whatever. Um, which, again, is severe, like heavy, heavy foreshadowing for what Giles does in season six. Yeah. Um, like, you can even see it on his face. As she's talking, you can even see his face where he's like, I gotta go. I can't, I can't stay here. Um, but she comes out of that and she, well, it's also, that's calling back to, uh, earlier. Uh, yeah. When he was going to leave. Gonna leave. Yeah. Um, but she comes out of the back room having just done that. And, uh, she decides to steer heavy into being the adult because she feels like Dawn is being too infantilized by the others because they are using a game in order to, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think that that's why she was doing it. Um, they they were talking about, you know, putting your foot down uh-huh. and. Uh, oh, I know. It's an overreaction she, to what she was just told by Giles. Yes, absolutely. But I don't think that it was so much that they were infantilizing her as that uh, she was clearly having fun and homework's not supposed to be fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. But just. It, it it's just a weird shift to go from that uh and like i said i i i know why it happened but to go from that to then the folding laundry scene and offering to give her gold stars on yeah. her on her thing is like the very next scene so it's it's just a weird dichotomy i guess that plays out which dichotomy in characters is interesting so i'm not knocking it but um so what else <laughs> we get in um, here i think it's incredibly uh contrived that social services got involved with a white family because you know <laughs> three three weeks of of skipping school mm-hmm. like i mean i can see you know uh giving her in school suspension or something mm-hmm. but just being like yeah we went st- straight to social services yeah, seems, but seems ridiculous. how old is the Scooby gang at this point? I've lost track. They're 1920, somewhere in there, right? Yeah. So, she, so, so Buffy is legally an adult, which mm-hmm. means that, that like that isn't the issue. She, she is legally capable of being, uh, Dawn's legal guardian. Um, so it's right. not that issue. Yeah. Three weeks of skipping school. See, that's, that's a little bit extreme for that to have happened, but um, and the whole, the whole white family aspect of it. I mean, to be fair, that's the only kind of family we have in Sunnydale. Indeed. <laughs> so, um, uh, let's see. Uh, last episode we had the uh, off-camera implied oral sex that happened. This episode we get the uh, off-camera implied torture when Giles is questioning the the minion yes i absolutely feel that that's foreshadowing to the gift okay like when he uh deals with ben right yeah he had the girls turn away mm-hmm. so that you could take care of it without like scarring them or setting up expectations right and then in the gift you know he waits till everybody's walked off before he takes care of ben Okay, I can't wait to talk about that scene. Um, 
so what else do we get in this episode we get uh well the way they got the minion i thought was funny the whole casual this too shall pass as he just absentmindedly opens yes. the door and smashes the guy's head been in my notes actually this too bonk shall pass <laughs> that's great uh, i love swan one of those times giles gets to be a little cool i know i love suave giles um so we get another example of well we get another example of buffy trusting spike um it's a little less jarring since this is coming after the whole I'll, i won't forget what you did for me and dawn whereas yeah. the two or three examples before came be- came before she had decided she was going to trust him but anyways another example of dawn's safe she's with spike um and then we get the uh the another wonderful moment of spike being again being more perceptive about about buffy's friends than she herself is yeah when he recognizes that willow's probably not giving up her whole revenge idea yeah i think buffy is like she's both um a little overconfident and um insecure about how like her her ability to she she's not like a big deep thinker mm-hmm. so so she's she's a little overconfident in this case but a lot of times she's also like super insecure about how like did i miss that how did I miss that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, jumping to that means we just jumped over the whole Tara gets her brain sucked out. I want to know so. how they came to the conclusion. Like, Glory has the minions talk about everything, and we never saw, like, the minions really see Tara being treated as special or finding out that she's new in the group. Like... Well, viewers know that she's the newest, not counting Dawn. But um, how does Glory figure it out? Yeah, you're right. Because we saw, we saw how they came to that conclusion with Spike. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember if there was anything in this episode that, if there was ever a scene of them peering through the window as Tara was being treated differently. I don't think there was. I think so. Hmm. Well, I mean, Glory herself says it's after that, I think. I think, maybe, it's after that. But Glory makes the comment, I just need to work my way through her friends. Sooner or later, I'll find That's the right true. one. So, <laughs> but yeah, when they headed off to find Tara, it certainly, it was for dramatic, it was a dramatic misdirect, uh, to be sure. Yes. But they still headed off as if, this is the one, we found her. <laughs> um, anyways. And I, I had forgotten, but uh, as I was doing research, I was reminded that this lasts the rest of the season, right? The uh, uh, Tara's mental state. Yes. Okay. Because yeah, I, 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 it's uh, Willow does the the brain thing in the gift. Okay. Yeah, in the final episode, I couldn't remember. I was I was racking my brain trying to figure out how do they fix this in the next episode. I don't I don't remember. Um, I mean, I guess there's only what two episodes left is that right yeah that's Uh, right yeah um so i wasn't that far off but anyways uh i had just forgotten that this was something that lasted like more than an episode um but anyways so dark willow we need to talk talk about dark willow the the these three episodes have really thrown season six foreshadowing in our face um yes and in terms of 
uh, Willow's kind of over-reliance on magic and her overconfidence in her magic. It's actually been this whole season has been throwing that in, in our face. But um, here, they go all out. I actually had forgotten that we get full-on, like, Dark Willow with the black eyes and everything. I I really forgot yeah, that that happened. I don't think she has the dark hair, but she gets she gets dark. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. Although... Am I the only one who thinks floating in is a waste of magical energy? <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can walk in and then use the power that you were using for floating to, you know, zap glory some more. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought of it in terms of floating, but I had thought, did you really need to cause an earthquake and shake the whole building and, like, blow the door off, <laughs> door off its hinges? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, again, dramatic effect. If I could do it, I would. Hell, I'd enter every room that way if I could. <laughs> True. Uh, that would be fun. But um, yeah, no, that was a, a cool scene. I also had this, the IOU pain and then she shoots the lightning. Uh, that makes it into mm -hmm. the opening credits of next season, doesn't it? I, I feel, think so. I feel like when I, when I saw that scene, I was like, oh, I've seen that a bunch. I think it's in the opening credits. It must be next season. But uh, anyways, it was cool. I mean, it, it, it's really chilling because... I know where it's going, but it was right. cool for a moment to see Willow like completely unleashed. Yeah. in these past two episodes, I really enjoyed the fights too. Mm -hmm. Like choreography and all that. I think it's really well done. And it just like, aside from it's harder to pick out the, the stunt doubles it's just, it's really well done and, and fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I no, I agree. Um, yeah, season five has a new uh, stunt team, uh, new stunt coordinator, and and uh, new doubles, stunt doubles. Um, and I think uh, not. I'm not throwing shade on the team that came in the first four seasons, but I think that it's really been improved in season five. I agree. Hmm. Um. I don't know if I have anything else. Um. Well, I've got. One of my favorite spike lines came from this, and I had forgotten about it, where he says, well, I'm not good, and I'm okay. Yeah. Um, I, I know... I have a little thing for Spike also, when uh, he's talking to Buffy about Willow, and he says, and she says it'd be like suicide, and he says, I'd do it. Yeah, for the And right then in person. season seven, he dies to hmm. support Buffy and, and her goal of shutting down the Hellmouth. Hmm. Look at you. I, I didn't even take it that far. I wasn't even thinking that far ahead, but you're right. Um, man, why, why are there people that don't like Spike? I don't get it. Um, okay. Uh, There's a few lines that I really liked. Uh, Xander's, let's try to be a little more inclusive. Not us, just you. Yeah, come on, Xander. <laughs> what the heck? And uh, I love when Anya says, you can sleep with me. Well, that was more like, lesbian than I'm... To me. Like, especially all the things that, that uh, Anya and Willow have gone through. It just seemed really sweet to me that she would offer that yeah. before backpedaling with... That was a lot more lesbian than I meant it to sound. <laughs> but uh, I have a big beef with this episode. Okay, good. What is it? Uh, Post-Mindsuck Terra also infantilized a lot. I, I've been hospitalized before for, for mental issues. Mm -hmm. And I've met a lot of people who have had um, 
a lot of different mental illnesses, different diagnoses, and I've never met any of them that like are just that regressed. And it's possible that it's just I am it's completely out of my uh my experience and I am projecting that, but it seems like they just made her a toddler. Okay, so is your is your issue with how she actually behaves once her mind has been altered or the way other the way her friends treat her afterwards? The way she behaves. Um I mean I I know I've met people who are schizophrenic, which is what I think um Glory's mind suck is supposed to kind of resemble mm. that the results are supposed to resemble. Um, and they are coherent and they, they are, they're mostly coherent and they, they, you know, they can feed themselves. I know they made the, the excuse with that crushed hand, but like Tara could have still held the applesauce cup or whatever. Which by the way, that was a massive cast. <laughs> For, for a crushed hand that went practically up to her elbow i was like geez come on guys um so yeah earlier in this season i tried to raise the issue of how this show deals with uh mental illness and i couldn't quite get any i couldn't quite articulate my thoughts on it my, my thoughts were half formed to be fair uh and i couldn't really articulate what i was thinking and i and I couldn't really ever get any of my guests to kind of jump on board and, and play along with me. So I've dropped that whole line of questioning, but now that you bring it back up, I'll tell you where I'm glad you brought it back up because it is a thing that early on in season five, I wondered about. Um, and perhaps to my shame, it didn't even register with me in this episode. And that's because I feel like over the course of this season, they've shown, uh, glory mind sucking various people and this is kind of what it does to them uh, like we've seen lots of her victims behave in this weird that i think you were right to make the argument that this is not an accurate portrayal of mental illness or most mental illness certainly but in terms of the show i think this is what it's done to people i guess my question yeah. early in the season was do we think this is yeah. problematic uh, well, early in the season, I think they, knowing, you know, all the context of Don being the key and stuff, the ones that, the first couple, they seem to, uh, at least you could see the, the through line now that once you know you, that Don's the key. But um, later on, it kind of, they get lazy and they just kind of write gibberish. Mm -hmm. And then with... with uh, with Tara, that's absolutely problematic. I think, I think they started out, you know, not great, but not terrible. And then they just went downhill. Yeah. No, that's fair. I, uh, I, I guess I wish I hadn't kind of let go of that thread in season five. I kind of wish, I, I don't remember what it was that, that irked me or, or kind of squicked me out maybe early in season five. And I, I thought that this was going to be an ongoing conversation and then I've, I've let it go. So here we are basically at the end of season five and you've brought it back. So thank you. No problem. Uh, so future guests be aware. I will be asking this again. Um, 
uh, yeah, but for for my part, I didn't. I mean, I guess I guess I noticed it being off just in the sense of I I love Amber Benson and uh, the character of Tara quickly grew on me, but mm-hmm. her early. I've always kind of had a little bit of an issue with the way Tamber, uh, Tamber, the the way Amber Benson portrayed uh, Tara's uh, really her most insecure moments, like when she starts to stammer and acts really like shy and insecure. Yeah, um, that's kind of where I feel like the maybe some of the cracks in in Amber's um, acting skill, at least back then, started to show. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got a little bit of that with her, with her quote unquote crazy act. Um, it's, it seemed so performative that it kind of took me out of the moment. Yeah. Also like, like it's a combination of her acting and the writing. Like mm-hmm. when, when glory rips off the wall and she says such pure energy, it's like the most clunky line I have yeah. ever heard. Yeah, so I I'd said that uh, that I might take issue with the writing in this episode. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it is writing and how much of it is pacing and and how much of it maybe maybe even directing. Maybe the director uh, trying to get a performance out of the actors was off. I don't know. There was something about the whole episode that felt a little bit off, and that is one of the big examples. That is a dramatic moment. Like this episode ends on a cliffhanger. Not many episodes in Buffy do that. Um, and just the pacing of ta- of having everybody basically hold your spots while Tara delivers a fairly long dialogue about suddenly noticing the green energy around around Dawn. I think the the reason she just noticed it then is uh, Gloria's appearance, not just like the the light coming in, but like Glory being near it, near uh, Dawn as the key, um, being near the key, kind of since she's one of the only creatures supposedly that can use it, right. you know, it, it activates something in the key. Yeah. So I'm okay with that part. It's just that line kills me. Yeah. The line was rough and, and it's, it was, it was too long in my opinion for everybody to just stand there in shocked silence after having the front front of the whole house ripped off. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, while Tara delivers this line, um, the line was clunky and the pacing was off. And that was definitely the worst moment of it, I think, in the episode for me, maybe. Um, but I kind of I just kind of felt that way through the whole episode. There were there were it was clunkier, maybe, than I would have liked. And the pacing was a little bit off. But yeah, I was also not like thrilled when the the uh, the fight between Tara and Willow went to uh, like they've been kind of you know with with te- with willow they've been doing um you know how she's gay now rather than you know she she could be bi right they, they go hard on that and um they they go to the stereotype of well you know maybe i'm just gay till graduation kind of a thing where where uh tara's worried about you know where willow whether Willow will stay with her mm-hmm. and with her down the line. And it's just, it feels like a little biphobic and a little bi erasure. And I'm not with that. Yeah. 
um I, that's one of those things that i think is highlighted um with revisiting the show from 2019 uh like in uh in 2001 when the show first aired it was it was you know progressive to have uh two lesbian or two gay main characters kiss on camera and be in a devoted relationship and everything like the show was being progressive in that respect um in 2001 there at least wasn't as vocal a contingent of people uh calling for uh bisexual representation yeah i remember that um when when uh when when Willow came out to everybody and was like, I'm gay, I remember thinking, you know, bi- bisexuality makes more sense, but mm-hmm. okay. Um, and I mean, it doesn't necessarily make more sense. There are lesbians who have dated men because either they didn't realize they were lesbians or they, they uh, weren't willing to face it at that time. Right. But it just it made more sense to me, which makes sense because I'm bisexual. And so... You know, I, I got over that pretty quickly when the first run, the uh-huh. first run through. But um, as I become more and more of an activist, I get more irked by it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am also, I have identified as bisexual. And at that time in 2001, I had acknowledged that already. So I don't as I've said many times, I don't really remember how I reacted to this stuff on my first watch. So I don't remember if I, if I had sort of made mental note of, Oh, is she gay or is she bi? Like, I don't remember how I responded to that at the time, but this, uh, this is, there's no segue here, but this episode, um, it really kind of put a button on the, the past three episodes with uh responsibility and fault like Ben when he gets fired mm. you know the doctor tells him he takes responsibility for his actions um Dawn feels that she is responsible for all the horrible stuff that Glory does and Glory tells Tara that she'd be responsible for the deaths if she asked for help when when Glory is right there right so there's all this uh like within the episode it's it's about misplaced responsibility but there's also you know this through line of responsibility and and uh adulthood that this really puts a button on man the the transition into uh like just depressing subject matter happened (laughs) a lot of people lay that at the the feet of season six I, I may or may not be one of those people. Um, but here we are in, in season five and it's already like, you have to grow up now. You have to be an adult. You have to take responsibility, man. I'm just trying yeah. to watch a show about vampires. What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, I love this show. I love it when it does that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, there was a scene early in one of the earlier episodes where um, Ben encounters Jinx and lets it slip that these the key is an innocent right and he's he's willing to stab jinx which you know he's he's committing or thinks he thinks he's committing murder to protect 
Dawn. And then later on, he, you know, he becomes part of the group holding Dawn and uh, helps Glory because he doesn't want to die. And it seemed like when, when that scene came around this time, I was like, why, why, what makes that switch? And I've, I've come down on the side that it's when he loses his job and he, he, you know, he hit on Buffy and uh, he called her and she kind of blew him off at the end of that episode. And so everything's starting to go wrong for Ben and he's got nothing left to lose except his life. And he's like, I'm not losing that too. That's, that's my thought on that. What do you think? I, I, I hadn't thought about it. I apologize. I, again, I'm embarrassed to admit I don't actually give a lot of thought to Ben's arc in the sense of like, who is he as a character? Why does he do the things he does? Um, I tend to think of Ben as the joke. Wait, Ben is glory. Like that, mm. that's literally what I think of Ben. And then I think of the end of Ben's story, like where it all goes. And I, in order to, in order to, put any weight or gravitas to the end of Ben's story, like to watch what Giles does and to, to have any moral gray area to that. You have to, in some regards, think of Ben as a human. <laughs> Otherwise the, the moral gray area isn't quite as gray. Um, but it's weird that I, it never has occurred to me to wonder what's going through Ben's head. Like, what is it like to be Ben? Yeah, mostly I don't think about that, but it just seems like such a glaring switch. But, like, story-wise, they, they needed also not just to think of Ben as human, but to think of Ben as a bad human. Hmm. So, because otherwise Giles is, you know, Giles has always been a bit gray, but you don't want him, like, almost black gray. You You want him... You want a little more lightness in there. Right. So just kill some random person. Right. Uh, obviously, I'll have to talk about this more when when I'm covering uh, the episode, uh, The Gift, where it actually happens. But I, I am a little bit intrigued. I, had, I forgot that there was a moment where Ben appears to have shifted much more <laughs> into, into Glory's team. I I literally forgot that. Um, so, yeah, it happens in the next episode, I think. Like he he kind of he he teams up with the gang a little bit and then um then switches over a bit. Huh. Well, that's as with so much of this show, it'll be interesting to see how I respond to it on rewatch because my memory was that the whole horror that we as viewers experienced at watching Giles do what he does is that Ben wasn't innocent. And so I, I forgot that there was ever any graying of that, that there was ever any muddying of the waters there where we, yeah, he's an innocent, but he's, he's not that innocent and innocent. Okay. All right. Like, yeah. He's not like black, full on black hat guy, but he's, you know, he has he's some... an he has some culpability. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, man, I, this discussion has been a revelation. If only for me realizing I've never pondered Ben. 
I've never thought about. <laughs> like that character, he's just he's just a joke, and then he's a punch or you know a, a, a punctuation mark for for Giles. But yeah, for me, it's like ninety percent joke, seven percent the end, and then like three percent. Why does he just make the switch suddenly? <laughs> Interesting. So. Yeah, I think this is like the first or second time I've thought of it. So, like, I really gave a lot of thought about it to. All right, for, cool. for the podcast. I was like, I don't get this. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I, I was, I was just going to ask why the doc. First of all, why does Sunnydale apparently only have one doctor? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the same doctor that pops up every time they need a doctor in season five, uh, and then it was weird to hear the doctor when he was firing Ben, all of the various things that he came up with. First of all, there's the, it ends on the punchline of, or I know, I know an, an alien evil entity took over your body and made you do things. And I, as a viewer is rolling my eyes like, Oh God. Uh, but he also, he also raised the, he said, you know, the dog ate your homework. And then he said something about the Twinkie defense, which man, that's yeah, a, I don't know what that, is. that, Oh, you don't know what that is. I, I don't do know. Not. I don't remember the specifics, but at some point in, I think the nineties, I'm not going to look this up. So I'm not going to fact check myself. People can uh, send me hate mail if they want, but I think it was the nineties. There was some, uh, uh, there was some murder trial where uh, the person was trying to get off, was trying to prove that it was, he was trying to get off on insanity on an insanity plea, claiming that uh, he had succumbed to depression and he proved the way he wanted to prove that he was depressed as he had switched from a healthy diet to eating junk food and it was dubbed the Twinkie defense. Uh, well, so. that is, you know, something that you do when you're depressed. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't remember the specifics, but I just know, right. th I just know that that's the, the joke of the Twinkie defense. And I thought that was just a weird pull <laughs> for the doctor yeah, to throw into that. But anyways, so that's it. I, I don't think I have anything else. Um, uh yeah i didn't really have anything else yeah while we were talking about ben it occurred to me that it'd be like suicide i'd do it is also kind of foreshadowing for buffy and the gift which is probably really obvious to everyone but i didn't think about it till just now yeah another good catch i also hadn't thought of it i i i was wondering just now when we were talking about ben my first thought was if ben's really a good guy why doesn't he kill himself if he knows that that would defeat glory and i was like that's kind of rough yeah no, don't can't put that on a character but anyways um okay cool uh anything else any final points uh i guess i did want to mention that xander just because i'm the comic book guy uh, xander was reading an issue of x-men and i don't know i paused to see if i could figure out what it was and i I really couldn't figure it out on my own, but apparently, according to Wikipedia, I think they say it's X-Men 109, which is the first appearance of a character who would eventually become known as Guardian. So I just, I was trying to figure out what the significance of that issue was. I own that issue. I was trying to figure out what does that have to do with the story? Like, why, why is that the issue he's reading? And the only thing I can come up with is the whole Guardian, uh, Buffy is... Dawn's legal guardian. It's su that's a stretch. It's a super stretch. <laughs> I'm sure it was just a random issue they had him read, but I, I want there to be significance to everything. I, I am that way a lot too, so I understand. All right. Well, thank you, Melanie, for um, 
for patiently waiting in the wings all this time <laughs> to come back on the show. Um, obviously, season seven uh, is looming in the future, but uh, I'm I'm sure you can pop back up for season six. Quick question: What are your feelings on season six? Are you a fan or not? It's not my favorite season okay. because of Buffy's depression. Because I am bipolar, so I do go through a lot of depression, and I don't really want to do that with my my entertainment. Yeah. Um, you know there there are some really good episodes, and I think other than like that, the terrible magic as drugs metaphor, <laughs> it's a lot better than most people think. Yeah, I. Uh... I'm famously not a fan and supporter of season six. I, I acknowledge that there are some fantastic episodes, uh, arguably one of the best episodes in the entire series come out of season six. Uh, but season six as a whole just kind of pissed me off originally. <laughs> so we'll see where I come down on this. Rewatch. Well, when uh, when the, everything originally ran, um, I stopped watching halfway through season five because uh, I was dropping out of college and I was really depressed. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come back to the show until a third or fourth episode in in season six. So I may have rose-tinted glasses on that one. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, yeah, I will have to find an opportunity for you to come back in six then and see. Um, To to basically force you to rewatch season six (laughs) and see how you feel about it. So. until then, thank you for coming back. And uh, do you want to let the people at home know where they can find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Research Nerdery, all one word. Uh, that's pretty much it. Okay, that's cool. God bless you for only having the one. Um, and uh, bless you guys at home for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Um, if you do that, please rate us or write us a review, uh, spread the word. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on whatever we've been talking about, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead. Uh, next things get seriously dire in the next couple of episodes as if they aren't already dire but uh it gets even worse so what better time to welcome a shiny new guest to the podcast right margaret ann robbins joins me for her debut conversation uh, as we discuss episodes 520 spiral and 521 the weight of the world so until then ger arg everybody ger arg you thought the leaden winter would bring you down forever but you rode upon a steamer to the violence of the sun And the colors of the sea Find your eyes with trembling mermaids And you touch the distant beaches With tales of brave Ulysses How his naked ears were tortured By the sirens sweetly singing For the sparkling waves are calling you To kiss the white lace You see a girl from far 